So good afternoon or evening for some of you. Um, maybe even morning for some of you, I'm not sure. Um, I hope your day of practice has been uh, nourishing for you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, faith and wisdom, two of the spiritual faculties. And just to refresh ourselves, their faith or confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And the reason we uh, talk to them, uh, talk about them in pairs, is because uh, they tend to balance each other. Uh, so I'll be doing faith and wisdom, and Shelley will be doing. Um, uh, energy and concentration. So these are, as Shelley said, these are factors of mind that uh, deeply affect everything we do in daily life and in our meditation practice. Um, they affect our formal meditation, or mindfulness in daily life, and our relationships with others. We all have these faculties. In anything we do, they're there to some extent. Getting to know them and developing them are an integral part to deepening our practice. We refer to them as spiritual faculties when we develop them for the purpose of freedom, of being at peace, of liberation. The practice is... Um, often referred to as the middle path. It's a path that refrains both from the extreme asceticism of deprivation uh, to the other side of complete sensual indulgence. It encourages balance and moderation. So just when we're meditating, um, you know, you hear us say, you know, we aim for a posture that's upright and dignified, but completely relaxed. So just that really nice balance between the two, not the tension of a military posture or the relaxation of the couch potato, but somewhere in the middle. And it's similar when we consider these five faculties. Mindfulness is seen as the neutral faculty, which is helpful at all times. <clears throat> So uh, the, the Pali word for uh, faith or confidence is sada. Um, for some of us, the word faith has the negative associations with uh, blind belief. So for some people, confidence or trust might be more, um, more come closer. Um, but the word sada literally means to place your heart upon. I, which I really, I love that. You know, when we place our heart upon the moment, it's like we're wholeheartedly pre present, fully present, bringing our heart to every moment. It's, um, that's the essence of faith, of confidence. Uh, Sharon Salzberg defines it as trusting our own deepest experience. 
And this process of uh, confidence, of developing a faith and confidence in ourselves and in the practice, is the same process we do in learning anything else. For instance, um, when I was young, you know, I watched people playing tennis. And I thought, oh, that looks like fun. And I decided to try it, so borrowed a racket. You know, so enthusiastic. You know, I got on the court with a friend, racket in hand. But within minutes, uh, my enthusiasm completely waned as I found that I spent most of my time chasing missed balls. And, um, and it wasn't so much fun. <laughs> I was exhausted. And I had all sorts of doubt that I could learn to play. Uh, but a friend encouraged me, and I tried again. And the second time, you know, some of the serves got over the net. And um, and I began to have a sense of, oh, well, maybe I could learn to play. And as I played regularly, I saw that the more I played, the better I got. And the more my confidence grew. And um, the process is similar in practice. You know, maybe we meet someone um, uh, as, you know, when I met one of my teachers, you know, who's far along the path and they deeply inspired me. And it's a wonderful feeling that we, that we can have with our initial inspiration and practice. Or maybe we read a book that deeply inspired us. Um, when I was 14, I read Siddhartha and I was just so, so inspired by it. Um, and they call this initial inspiration a bright faith. It's a faith that gets us started, and that's what gets us be- beginning the practice. But this beautiful bright faith is inherently unreliable. Uh, it might get us started, but maybe the next day we meet someone else who inspired us, but they teach a different method. And so off we go in a different direction. Um, we get distracted by whatever influence comes into our lives next, the last wind. We fall experienced having an initial enthusiasm for something fade away. Um, sometimes we've um, joked about this tendency, uh, you know, we've called, uh, I've heard people called nightstand Buddhists. They get inspired by book after book, they just keep reading books about practice and another book about practice but never actually doing it themselves and the the reason this um bright faith fades away is because it's not based on anything solid it's not based on our own experience but as we practice a deeper level of confidence can develop and this is called verified faith which means it's grounded in our own experience rather than coming from somewhere or or something outside of ourselves. Maybe we learn that the practice is helpful to us. Maybe we notice that breathing has calmed our anxiety or helped us be more patient. Maybe we're less angry. And with each of these experiences or confidence in both our ability to be mindful and value mindfulness grows. With practice, we can develop a heartfelt confidence 
in the possibility of our own awakening, of our own deep happiness, of peace. Deepening of this verified faith based on our own experience doesn't mean that we don't allow ourselves to be regularly inspired by, by those we meet, by books we read, or talks we listen to. When inspiration is triggered from somewhere, um, someone outside ourselves, we can get folded into our own experience and just supporting our own faith and confidence. It can be a pretty strong change in the orientation of our lives when we go from an intellectual appreciation of the path to a deep, heartfelt confidence that says, yes, it's possible to awaken. It's possible for me to be free. On one particular retreat, I was really delighted when my mind um, spent extended periods of peace and calm that never experienced before. And it just strengthened my confidence in the practice. And when my mind got restless again, there was just a deeper trust that, oh, that's okay. I know what's possible. But at another point in my practice, my mind was filled with really deep suffering. I touched something incredibly painful in myself. Um, I think it was close to the worst I remember feeling in my entire life. And it took all the courage I could summon to actually stay present for the painful thoughts and feelings that, that were coming up. But I kept meeting it showing up for it, knowing that it was incredibly difficult to be with it, that to turn away would be a mistake. And when it was over, even though I was pretty exhausted, um, I was surprised that instead of being discouraged, uh, my confidence in the practice felt stronger than ever, a confidence that could meet whatever I rose, whatever I had to deal with in my life. So by being present, faith develops regardless of whether our experience is wonderful and enjoyable or difficult and challenging. The opposite of faith can be seen as doubt. Uh, But there can be a doubt that's very positive. And the doubt that I very much appreciate, it's it's the inner voice that says, I want to know for myself, not because you say so. Not because somebody worthy says so. Not because everybody thinks it's true. Or because it's in a book. We can put into practice and find out for ourselves from our own experience. It's a practice we're doing leads to less greed, less anger, less hatred or fear. We can trust that. 
if it leads to clarity, we feel less cut off and more connected. We can trust that. Another form of healthy doubt can arise during meditation. Probably one of the most freeing things for me was when I began to doubt that the negative thoughts that arose about myself and about others were true. I had all sorts of ideas about myself that were not friendly. And when I started questioning them, is that really true? Um, it, it was uh, pretty transformative for me. I learned to not believe everything I think, to doubt that my thoughts were the absolute authority. <clears throat> Excuse me a second. I need to, a little technical adjustment here. And, okay. <clears throat> the little techno bumps we get uh, unexpectedly. Um, but there's another aspect of doubt that can hinder the practice. This is when we have doubt about the practice or about the method we're using or our own abilities during meditation, which keeps us thinking about it and not actually practicing. Maybe you've done that before. You know, I've spent plenty of time thinking about whether I'm doing it right and not paying any attention to what's really going on, but just endlessly speculating on uh, maybe I should be doing it this way. Maybe I should be doing it that way. And instead of really paying attention to what was right in front of me. During meditation, this is the hindrance of doubt. As with all the hindrances, when doubt arises, we're no longer applying ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with doubting the practice, with having questions. It's just not useful during meditation. So we put it aside. And if it's important, something we need to explore, you know, maybe we ask a teacher after. But in the process of meditation, we devote ourselves to paying attention to the present, however it is. And just an example was um, uh, before I, I began practicing Vipassana, I spent some time practicing Zen. And when I started practicing with my first Vipassana teacher, uh, I found it really confusing. You know, well, do I meditate with my eyes open or closed? Uh, how do I do this? And I just kept going back and forth, back and forth, trying to figure out um, what was the right way of practicing, you know. And, and finally, after kind of ruining my practice, <laughs> um, one of my teachers said to me, uh, it's not that either method is better, but they should stick to a single technique for at least two years and really get good at it first. It takes time to develop the skill. Then if you want to try something else, um, then you can have a real comparison. It didn't mean that the doubt disappeared suddenly and I was like 100% all my answers 
you know, uh, very clear. But I just stopped, uh, I stopped getting in the way. I just put it on hold. So we cultivate confidence by doing things, by focusing on what we can do, not not on what we can't do at this time. We all have the experience of confidence, right? We learn to walk. You know, we fell on on our bums so many times. I think we fell on our bums more times when we were babies than, um, you know, we've lost track of our breath. <laughs> and um, somehow we figured out how to do it and to walk around confident in our ability to walk. Um, and some of us, as we get older, you know, we may notice that our bodies aren't as, quite as reliable. Uh, maybe we can't walk the way we used to. Um you know, maybe it's slower or we need to use a cane. And uh, confidence comes from meeting what's here as best as we can. Okay, I can show up for this too. I can adapt to this and to this. Um, in my youth, I spent many years developing my yoga practice. I was really limber and strong. And I really valued the, you know, I just, you know, I thought it was fantastic. I was, you know, strong and balanced. And then I had an accident. And so much of what I was used to doing, uh, I couldn't do anymore. It just made everything worse. And I was really discouraged. And my friend who was a yoga teacher, she said to me, don't stop. Just focus on what you can do. And there wasn't much it allowed me to move, to connect with my body, and to relax instead of being stuck in resistance and loss. So focusing on what we can do. And, um, and forgive the pun, you know, I, I live with the uh, uh, compulsive punner, and um, uh, he says this is um, confidence. <laughs> So instead of confidence, confidence, but we can do. And we don't usually try to scale Mount Whitney if we've never climbed a small hill. And so as we develop our confidence, it helps to have small little goals. Um, Maybe we manage to sit 30 minutes without moving. Or maybe we manage to follow three cold consecutive breaths. Then maybe it's on point four or five. And gradually we develop a confidence that we can be mindful of breathing. Maybe we can show up fully for an emotional storm, uh, you know, feel some pain that shows up and not shy away from it, not run away from it, not get lost in the story of it. Just allow it to come through us. Maybe we can meet boredom with confidence. Now, what do you think of that? Meeting boredom with confidence. Okay, I can be with this feeling. How about restlessness? Can we meet restlessness with confidence? Without trying to fix them, 
just to allow what's happening and be there for it. When practice and life are difficult, we can develop a deep trust in this power of mindfulness, that it's enough just to pay attention to whatever is in front of us in this body, right here, just in this moment. It's simple, just simple. Now I'll talk a little bit about wisdom. And as I mentioned, these two qualities of trust and faith and confidence and wisdom or discernment, they balance each other. Sometimes wisdom is a vague word for some people. Um, One general way of describing wisdom is the clarity of mind and, and understanding of the situation that lets us distinguish what decisions are helpful and which decisions are unhelpful. A little bit like I think most of us have heard of the story of Bob uh, Solomon, you know, he was he considered very wise. I won't go into the story, but that's basically what he did. He made choices because he saw the situation very clearly so he could make helpful choices. Um, so wisdom is this capacity in us to see a situation and choose wisely. The Pali word for wisdom is pana and or uh, panya. It's also often translated as discernment or understanding. So sometimes the word discernment points a little bit more to the this or that, noticing helpful or unhelpful, to discern that difference between the two. But when we talk about wisdom um, in this way, it refers to wisdom in relation to the path of freedom. In Mahayana Buddhism, there's a powerful image of the Bodhisattva, um, Manchushri, holding the sword of wisdom in its right hand. And um, a Bodhisattva is someone whose life is dedicated to helping others become free. Uh, Manchushri is shown often sitting like a ferocious lion and holding a flaming sword in his right hand. And in his left, there's often a manuscript of the Dharma. So sitting on the lion represents how he has tamed his mind. And the sword of wisdom is the sharp tool he uses to cut through ignorance, to cut through the entanglements of the mind. I like that image. I like this the image of, of the sh- sharpness of clarity of mind that lets things, lets ignorance be cut through. In insight practice, the tool we use to cut through these entanglements of the mind is called investigation or investigative wisdom. It's this aspect of attention that sees simply the differences between things. It's really fascinating. It's a very simple, simple tool 
It just sees this or that. Um, and it's the capacity of the mind to see what's helpful, what's not helpful. Wisdom is as simple as my shoulders are up by my ears. Huh, that's not helpful. And it's helpful to relax. So that tools are play often. Uh, but as we practice, it becomes uh, much more refined, that tool, and much more subtle. We use it to see the difference between a fantasy and being aware of the present moment. You can easily tell the difference between those two, right? And so, so we keep looking at, at our experience and noticing, ah, that's helpful. I'll go that way. That's not helpful. I won't go that way. Uh, the difference between an attitude of kindness or one that has the flavor of ill will so those are all things that we can all do. They're, they're very simple. Wisdom is right there for us. It, the path of wisdom is right in front of us. And so if we just keep taking it towards the helpful, towards the helpful, towards the helpful, this path is a forward-leading path. If we keep making the, choice that are help, the choices that are helpful, um, that takes us forward into the path of happiness and freedom. If we keep getting uh, sidetracked by um, the fantasies and the, and, uh, the stories about how we've been wronged and the stories or how they're doing it wrong, uh, it takes us away from this uh, path of happiness. So the teachings refer to three levels of wisdom. Um, each of these levels has an important place in our spiritual life. And those three levels are um, wisdom acquired through learning, wisdom acquired through reflection, and wisdom developed in meditation. So the first kind of wisdom is wisdom acquired through learning. And that includes meditation instructions or learning about the Eightfold Path, uh, listening to a Dharma talk, studying, reading. Uh, these can give us what we need so we can develop or continue to deepen our practice. It's the cognitive side of wisdom. And these um, ideas and perspectives can be very helpful for helping us to engage in practice. Um, for instance, <clears throat> learning about karma can inspire us in practice. Karma points out that our actions makes, make a difference and have consequences. For example, if we want to learn to draw a figure, we need the confidence that our training will make a difference in our skill over time. Otherwise, we wouldn't persevere. I personally don't have much artistic talent, so I was really surprised when I took a drawing class and saw my drawings transform from something that looked like it was drawn by a four-year-old uh, to something that looked a little bit like a human body. So, you know, that's the love karma play. 
you know, or neuroscience, same thing. It says that whatever we practice is what we develop. If we practice meditation, our concentration naturally strengthens. If we practice distracting ourselves with our devices, our habits of distraction get stronger. This is the law of karma. This is, this is the way the brain works. So the second kind of wisdom is wisdom acquired through reflection. Now, reflection is essential to make many of the important decisions in our lives uh, for developing a deeper understanding of the world we live in. Um, you know, this is uh, reflection our, we might use when we want to um, we move, we want to change jobs, we want to get into a new relationship, uh, all sorts of ways that we use reflection in daily life. Um, in terms of the practice, uh, for instance, um, uh, I was reflecting on, well, what does non-harming really mean to dedicate my life to non-harming? And, um, and I realized that first I needed to notice when I was causing harm. So I started to pay attention um, and, uh, you know, just really keeping that question close to my heart, you know, um, uh, am I causing harm? And uh, I started to make some choices in my life, such as uh, minimizing actions that harm the environment. Um, to be more honest, you know, those, those kind of choices came from reflecting on non-harming. It was reflection that led me to prioritize the Dharma, to place in the center of my life, of my priorities. Over the years, um, I've regularly set time aside to reflect on connecting with my deepest intentions and motivations and practice. Some form of the question, why do I practice or what do I value? What's most important in my life? What's most important to me? It can be a very rich practice to reflect, to think about these important themes in our lives. We can give ourselves time for reflection and value the process. Maybe going for a walk or sitting in a garden or sitting on the sofa looking out the window. But I think it's important to keep it separate from formal meditation practice. It's useful to reflect mindfully, but not to use it as a distraction from meditation when meditation feels challenging. Not to think about meditation instead of meditating. The third kind of wisdom is the insight that comes from developing meditation. And this is the kind of wisdom we can prioritize when we sit retreat, when we do formal practice. When I first learned about the Four Noble Truths, the idea that clinging or grasping causes suffering, it resonated with me intellectually. It just felt uh, it was right but it wasn't real to me. 
it didn't start becoming real until I began to have the direct experience of the relief one can feel when we release so grasping. From little releases, like relaxing a longly held tension. Um, you know, there, I had tensions in my body that are no longer there. And uh, to, to the tension in the mind of long-held ideas. Um, one of the ideas that caused me tremendous suffering, and I, I've, you know, those who know me, I've, you've heard this before, but this idea that life should be fair, you know, and um, that and life isn't fair. And that constant um, holding that, well, it should be fair, it should be fair. It just kept me angry all the time because it wasn't fair. Um, you know, you've seen like the little child that says, that's not fair, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, my mind was living there <laughs> much of the time. Um, but these little releases, what they may seem like little releases, these little letting goes, after a while they have a deep cumulative transformative effect on us. And they prepare the mind for deeper and even more profound releases. You know, thinking, you know, um, uh, Shelley did the... Um, did a beautiful job this afternoon, you know, leading us on mindfulness of thinking, you know, and um, thinking can be useful in practice, you know. I mean, this is how we recognize we're distracted. Uh, when we bring the attention back to the breath, you know, there's often a thought there. Um, noticing if there's tension, if there's resistance, you know, these are helpful thoughts. Um, Noticing when we're relaxed. It can be very skillful to use thinking this way. But when the mind gets quieter and quieter, mindfulness practice becomes uh, more non-discursive and non-discursive investigation of our experience. And when the mind gets that quiet and the thoughts begin to be really... Um, uh, spaced apart quite a bit, and uh, and we stop being our experience stops being filtered through ideas and concepts, without judgments and conclusions. We're just here in the flow, and we begin to see the three universal characteristics of experience, because we see things coming and going. Just everything arises and goes away. We begin to see impermanence, but not as an idea, but we just see them, see it happening right in front of us in a very deep felt way. We see the unsatisfactoriness that, that everything that comes and goes, none of it's going to give us lasting happiness. Everything comes and goes. Um, and it becomes clear that nothing we experience can be seen as a stable self we can point to as me. Am I that thought? Am I my pinky? Am I, you know, so there's nothing really stable that we can point to as me. Not our bodies, not our feelings, and not our thoughts. 
And as we meet these three aspects directly, without any filters, we, wisdom grows. This is the deepest wisdom that, that we refer to in practice. We can see the suffering that comes if we resist this constant change. We can't stop everything from changing. So resistance is futile. If any of you are familiar with the term, <laughs> um, <clears throat> we can't resist change. When we resist change, we suffer. We can begin to know a happiness that's not dependent on our changing conditions. We can see that our limitations or imperfections non-judgmentally without believing that they define who we are. The full development of wisdom, of insight, comes when the heart and mind don't cling to or resist anything. When we can allow experience to arise and pass through just as it is. And from this place of wisdom, we can make choices, wise choices in everything we do because we're not grabbing on to anything so we can see clearly. We can learn to do what's needed, even in a challenging world, without the mind and heart becoming contracted or tense. This full development of wisdom comes from within ourselves, not from a teacher or from anything we learn, but from the development of our own mind. They said, faith and wisdom balance each other, as do energy and concentration. And um, we often hear the wise advice to learn to trust the deep inner voice within us. And that's a really wonderful advice, to really listen to that quiet voice deep within us. But just as important is to not believe everything we think. And that's a voice within us. Not everything we think is true. And so that's the balance between faith and wisdom. You know, the trust that we have of that inner voice and the wisdom that says, okay, no, no, let's see what's, what's really uh, wholesome and what isn't wholesome. So that's the balance, that middle path between blind belief and wisdom. Um, faith, there's something very comforting to blind faith. You know, it's trusting with that understanding, trusting blindly. And for some people, that's really seductive because it gives us a false sense of security. So we need the wisdom, the penetrating wisdom, to really see clearly 
so that the trust and confidence doesn't come from a fantasy, but from really seeing life as it is. Um, It's so easy to see how sometimes people are inspired by a teacher uh, after hearing some wonderful wisdom, and then they put so much trust in the teacher that they ignore ethical transgressions. And we've all heard of all, you know, many of these um, uh, scandals, you know, in spiritual groups. Um, and it comes from putting faith in someone else other than ourselves. And sometimes you see the fanaticism, you know, of uh, the fundamentalist side of religious movements, where there's so much faith without too much questioning. Um, you know, so blind faith leads to this, uh, you know, blind, uh, to not seeing clearly. It's not a wholesome faith. And uh, wisdom without faith can lead to like a spiritual arrogance. You know, the belief that our understanding is the best understanding, you know, this or this is the only way. Um, so there's the, that trust of the heart the quality of heart that comes from a real confidence, an inner confidence uh, that's based on really uh, wholesome qualities in ourselves and the wisdom, the ability to see clearly um, that uh, still has the heart in it, that isn't just some intellectual disconnected piece, but really connected with that very deep connection of faith and trust. Um, sometimes discernment without trust um, can lead to being um, too nitpicky. Uh, it tends to ignore intuition, or what we might call leaps of faith, which is often how we grow in new ways and discover new things. Albert Einstein said, I never came upon any of my discoveries through the process of rational thinking. I think that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, you know, you think of like his discoveries of being so left-brained, uh, you know, so systematic, you know, I mean, this is math, science, physics, um, you know, but um, never came from rational thinking. Um, so, so that combination, that balance between the two, This sort of wisdom is an image of strength, and it takes confidence to wield a sword. Sometimes in meditation, we may emphasize the receptive aspects of attention, opening to what is, just as it is. But when investigative wisdom is applied, it balances the receptive, calm aspect of mind and brings a strong presence to the moment. It allows us to engage in the moment, to be fully there. So it's not just receptive, it's engaged. It's that middle path. Neither doing or or being completely passive. It's just that full engagement with the moment, being tranquil and alert. We're fully here now. There's a sense of vitality in us. 
I like to call that balance as joyful tranquility. To really, um, to me, brings that the quality of uh, play, the joyful tranquility. It takes away some of the seriousness. You know, sometimes we get too serious in practice. And, you know, enlightenment, it's a, you know, some of it's about lightening up. And so I like to include that, that quality um, in uh, nurture, that, that lightness that comes with that. So I'd like to end with a poem um, by Ashan Shah. <clears throat> Peace is to be found within oneself in the same place as agitation and suffering. It's not found in a forest or on a hilltop, nor is it given by a teacher. Where you experience suffering, you can also find freedom from suffering. Trying to run away from suffering is actually to run towards it. So let's share a minute of silence. Thank you.